Hi, this is Day for Night with Gadidatsvich, a series that looks at the intersection between theater and poetry in the Edgelands, in the wilderness. In today's episode, I'm going to continue with readings from the Six Notebook Collection, Signal Fires. I feel like the collection has fired me up. <laughs> um, and so I, I am I'm eager to share selections of it from it uh, to the with the world, um, whoever's listening out there. And so uh, in the last two episodes, I, I read from the first two notebooks. And uh, this is from the third notebook, which is uh, called Flint and Steel. S-T-E-E-L, Flint and Steel. And I'm going to actually read two selections. They're both rather long. Uh, well, not extensive, but longish. Um, the first one is by Mark Mike Bartlett, the playwright. Uh, it's a piece called Phoenix. And, and the next will be uh, a piece, a poem by uh, Alice Oswald. So... We'll start uh, with Mike Bartlett's piece, Phoenix. He shouldn't be here, Tim thought, as he stood in the dark, throwing plastic wrapper after plastic wrapper into the designer fire pit. He could hear behind him the muffled sound of his two-year-old daughter crying and his wife of five years trying to get her to sleep. He had said there was a phone call to make and had escaped, but that was a lie. He had needed a moment to himself, so he had gone to the car, grabbed the packet of Cadbury's celebrations from the glove compartment, and headed back to the designer fire pit where, up until an hour ago, they had been sat drinking wine. He'd stoked it, and thankfully it had come back to light, the last couple of logs still with some flame. Since the birth of their child, he had given up his vices. He drank in extreme moderation. He didn't smoke anymore. Drugs were years ago, but he could still eat chocolate. And then he realized if he threw the plastic onto the fire, he could smell the mildly toxic fumes that came out. And he liked that. The idea of doing something very slightly wrong. But, of course, he was doing something more than very slightly wrong in this moment. That was the problem. He felt sick, deep in his stomach. He thought this must be what it feels like when someone has committed murder, but no one else knows. Or stolen something extremely valuable. Like when the crime has been committed, but the other shoe is yet to drop. The shit yet to hit the fan. And only you know. Only the culprit is aware through his sickness that they are in the calm before the storm. He stopped eating the chocolates. He wasn't hungry. Instead, he just took the wrappers off and kept burning them. He wished he had a fucking cigarette. The sound of his daughter still crying. And across the way, he could hear a television on in the big house. His parents were watching Downton Abbey. Not for the first time. His little family were staying in the stable a converted outhouse on his parents' small holding. They'd had it for a few years. It was tasteful, but soulless, much like them. 
His phone was filling up with emails every minute, but that was normal. If that stopped, then he'd really be worried. How had he ended up in this situation? It all felt so pathetic and without influence. Buffeted by circumstances when he had spent his adult life telling everyone who'd listen, student societies, then campaign groups, think tanks, and now the highest level of government, that one must always act strategically. Take the time and press forward with what you want. You start trying to fix things, address problems, soothe, apologize, solve, salve, or explain, and you'll weaken, sink, you'll never escape. And yet, that was exactly what he had done in the last 12 hours. He'd only reacted spontaneously and impulsively, and as a result, had made a number of terrible decisions, all leading him here to this fucking designer fire pit. And now his imagination was starting to work. Uh, this was almost certainly going to be the end for him and his career and his family. When the people found out that he had contravened the rules, the guidance, possibly even the law, was it the law yet? Had to find out to come up here, they'd have what they needed to remove him. They wouldn't care that in these circumstances, the list of people his wife would allow to look after their daughter was four people long, and that two of those people were her parents who lived in New Zealand. And that him and his wife, with this positive diagnosis, were looking like they might get very ill indeed. And so it really was their only option to get to his parents as quickly as they could. No one would hear that or believe it. And as he sat there, he didn't think it sounded much more than a, an excuse. Others will, at this moment, be dealing with worse. Why did he agree to her? She just went on and on at him, saying there were no options, saying he had to put his daughter first this time to hell with every, anything else. This was family. And if he didn't drive them, she'd get in the fucking car and do it herself. He tried to make an argument, but she didn't listen. She was rational. She wasn't rational. She was just thinking about herself and their daughter and nothing else, which he supposed is what a parent is supposed to do. In which case, what was he? Throughout it all, he was thinking all sorts of things. They could get an emergency nanny. They had friends. It would all be fine. And the consequences of breaking the rules could be disastrous for the future, for the career. But she had kept on. And he, he found himself getting their stuff in the car in half an hour then, all getting in and setting off up north, only calling his parents once they were on their way. How had he made that decision? He found he couldn't remember. His wife appeared at the window looking for him. He sent a text to her. Sorry, this is taking a while. She received it and looked irritated. He hated her for a split second. She had put on weight since the baby, but he had got fitter. She was graying. His hair was thick and dark. They were heading in different directions as they got older. He was realizing he was getting more attractive. She was getting less. And she developed this hectoring tone. Was that why he'd done it? It simply capitulated to her going on and on. The downtrodden husband from a 1980s sitcom. He thought of the last woman he'd had sex with before his, he'd met his wife. 2014. She was 30, a hotel receptionist in New York. 
She'd flirted with him, and at first he thought it was just her professional manner, but day by day she'd become more forward and he'd responded. By the end of the week, they were having a drink on her night off. He'd ended up booking the best suite in the hotel. It had cost him a month's salary, but it was worth every penny. They'd drunk and kissed and smoked on the roof overlooking the city and taking each other's clothes off and talked in all sorts of ways until they were sweaty and made a huge mess. They had woken early, showered, and gone for breakfast at a terrible diner and walked in the autumn leaves in Central Park. At the time, he hadn't known it was the last hurrah. But hurrah, far cry from this in the grip of a situation of a wife, child, a role, a global fucking pandemic at the worst possible fucking moment, just when he was getting everything done. He looked out into the dark. What if he just walked away? He could simply start again. That would be wonderfully strategic. Convention would tell you there would be huge consequences. There wouldn't. He could find new, low-profile work. He could deal with his soon-to-be ex-wife and child via intermediaries and emails. His friends would be shocked, but the important ones would stick by him, putting it down to a midlife crisis. His daughter would hate him. But there were millions of dollars who hated their fathers. And who knows, she might eventually understand it and they would have a relationship and he would be free to do whatever the fuck he wanted again. To change the world, to change his world. The darkness out there, it appealed. He threw the celebrations box on the fire. It burned quickly and disappeared. To be honest, he might have to escape soon anyway. After what he'd done cajoled into this foolish trip, he would be forced to resign, and everything he was trying to achieve in government would be at an end. And more than that, he was such a high-profile figure that his disobedience of the rules might lead to a national collapse in confidence in the government's response, and that collapse could lead to people not following the rules, and that would, as things were right now, lead to deaths. Thousands of deaths, and yes, the more he thought about it, the more he realized there was no escaping that reality. When this emerged, as if as it no doubt would, he and his nagging wife would have been responsible for more people dead than would fit in a sports hall. Thousands, maybe. What that do to him? That would be all that his life would be about, this mistake and the consequences. His daughter calmed me down now, his wife seeing her to sleep, a crackling fire starting to die. He went over to the log store. It was empty. He went back to the fire, then looked around. There was a tree in the dark. He had no torch, and so stumbled across the field towards it. His foot hit a, what, maybe a clump, and he tripped and fell into the dirt. He lay there for a second, enjoying the cool of the ground, enjoying lying down the simplicity of the earth. Perhaps he could just stay here and see what happened. He hauled himself to his feet and staggered over to the tree. He ran his hands on the ground around the trunk and found dry material. Not branches, but a lot of twigs protected from the rain by the canopy of leaves above. He picked some up in his hands, but it wasn't enough. It would be gone quickly, and he was enjoying the fucking fire. He looked back at it. He was nearly dead. Nearly gone. Strategy. He took off his jumper suddenly, leaving him in only a thin t-shirt. He knotted the sleeves and made a bag out of it, and he started filling it with dry twigs. When he had finished, he started back towards the fire. The flames looked so small and nearly gone, so he ran. He ran, covered in mud and wet, holding his jumper bag, and as soon as he got back to the embers, he tipped the twigs onto the last few flames. As he did it, 
Dust went up through the air, and in a moment he realized he'd made a mistake. The tipping of the twigs had crushed the embers, stopping the oxygen, and put the whole thing out. He was desperate. Once again, he hadn't been thinking what had happened to him. Whatever the unique talent was that had got him this far had gone. He'd made a series of mistakes, and his life had led him to a child he didn't love, a wife who disgusted him, a cold field, and thousands stood at his hands. He'd shut his eyes and suddenly felt the heat. He opened them and saw the fire burst back as the twigs finally caught and it burned brightly more than before. He sat, the fire hot and captivating. His wife had come to the window, noticing the flames. She had a cup of tea now, and as the yellow light caught her face, she looked beautiful. So much more sexual and wonderful and intelligent than that fucking hotel girl. This was the woman he loved, and she didn't nag. She fought for their child, and that wasn't wrong. That was primal, and now he remembered. He hadn't been nagged into the decision. There had been a moment as he began to pack up provisions in the kitchen before they left that he'd realized this was completely the right thing to do. Put his family first and figure it out from there. He would tell anyone else to do the same. And he was strong. He was literally in power. This was the right thing to do, and he would deal with the consequences. And as the flames danced, he made a new plan. No one knew about this trip concurrently. Not really. He would keep it that way. Not hidden exactly, but unremarkable. And if eventually it came out, he would be unapologetic. He did the right thing for his family. He was an important man doing important things. He felt certainty in his core. There was absolutely one rule for him and one rule for them. Because he wasn't like them. He was exceptional in the factual use of the word. He had got to where he was because he was not like the rest, and maybe there would be thousands dead on this occasion, but because of his work, his interventions, his policies, his determination and courage, many more would live and thrive, and not many individuals have the guts to deal with those calculations and take on leadership of scale and existence. But it, it was necessary that some people did, and he was well qualified to be one of those few. He stood up, warm and bright, and ready to return to the house. Fuck them all. He could do what he wanted, because he was right. Sooner or later, they would realize that, and if they hated him in the meantime, he would just smile. His wife saw him through the window and looked surprised. She smiled at him, like she saw him in any way, like he must look newly attractive, sexy, maybe. Their daughter had gone to sleep. The evening was young. He smiled at his wife and started to head back to the house, feeling elemental, powerful, and very much in control. He was ready. His wife opened the door and they kissed. Tonight would be glorious. As he had told his colleagues for years, there was an opportunity in any crisis. And that's from Phoenix by Mark, Mike Bartlett. And I'm going to round it out with uh, Alice Oswald's The Watchman. And hopefully... Uh, We'll get through it. Um, it starts with a quote from Agamemnon by Aeschylus. So here's the quote. This is The Watchman by Alice Oswald. And here's the preface by Aeschylus. I am asking God to end right now this long year of watching 
lying like a dog on Agamemnon's roof, propped up on my arms. I know over and over the layout of the stars, all the clear, queenly lights that bring in summer and winter, and the constellations with their risings and settings, but here I am still watching for the flare of a signal to tell me Troy has been captured because these are her orders, that man-woman with her muscular mind. Whenever I make my damp and shifting and dreamless bed, where fear, not sleep, stands next to me, and I can never completely lock shut these eyelids whenever I try to sing or hum, as if to doze myself with a tincture of slumber, and I weep for this house which is not disciplined as it should be, used to be. Please, let there be an end to these difficulties, a message of light looking back at me through the darkness. A watchman stands before you, winged, or is it robed? One foot forward, a figure on a frieze, watchful. What an old, odd human, like a moth on a leaf. What a black jug brimful of all the dark I've peered into, with drooping medieval shoulders and lifted chin, watching the watchfulness of all things. Each eye envious of the other, each foot alone in its wet boot, I am proud of this long-held pose, this swivel neck, these leathery goatskin hands. A watchman stands and stands under strict orders, neither to sleep nor leave, but keep watching, being worn away to one's smooth eye, watching the watchfulness of all things. I saw a plum tree once lean over a wall, switch on its night bulbs, and all the roads went indigo. A hand was pulling a suitcase through a door. A voice was shouting, You idiot! You idiot! All that dark, all that not knowing, is trapped in the lining of my face. I have just this fissure of weeping sight as I turn like a moon vein to each smudge of light. A watchman, weary, what a night! Not a star, not a stone, not a leaf, not a world. No thought, only eyesight. Sometimes a silvery light sweeps over my hands, which might be the moon or a passing car. I don't care. I am here at the back of the earth in the cone of its shadow, watching. Each eye envious of the other, each foot alone in its wet boot, proud of my long-held pose. My swivel neck, my leathery goatskin hands, I stand and stand under strict orders, neither to sleep nor leave, but keep watching. Oh, you, who watch over watchers, small gods of besides spirits of windows, let me not forget this tense and tilted pose. Even if a fly lands like a Bronze Age arrow on my hands, enter my amnesia. Remind me to outwatch that watcher. So I tried to pray once, but my voice, too weak for all this dark, stopped. Something tiny and sharp and vanishing, leaving no trace, came over me whose touch was a tapping hand, which startled me, peering out, seeing only the rain, dropping its glance into the deeper and deeper dark, each drop a watchman being worn away to one smooth eye. No wonder I leaned to one side, peering into all this dark, for some flare, some signal of elsewhere. There should be a man out there, far away, on some invisible hill, setting light to brushwood, but the night, the night keeps pouring down and putting it out. No wonder I lean to one side in my rain-soaked skin with the wind blowing in. No wonder I'm pleading face to face with nothing. Tell me, is there a fine iron wire stitching my eyelids shut? Is this whole place my own trapped tear? 
because sometimes a man stands framed and lighted over there, and a woman under a golden lampshade glooms through her window. Sometimes a man stands framed and lighted over there, his head thrown back in a horror of halted laughter, and a woman under a golden lampshade moves through her window, her two white hands, each with its own blind soul, adjusting her hair. Now luck is lifting a man's foot softly upstairs, his head thrown back in a horror of halted laughter. And sometimes a man stands framed and lighted over there, sealed in the not yet known, like an insect in a prison of amber. And a woman under a golden lampshade moves to her window, her two white hands, each with its own blind soul, flipping through pages. Now luck is lifting a man's foot softly upstairs, sealed in the not yet known, like an insect in a prison of amber. One after another, each space reveals one house, each house reveals one window, each window contains one watchman, awake like me with my lost look. Sometimes under a golden lampshade, a woman moves to her window, takes her temperature and finds for all her anger she is still lukewarm. And sometimes a flute player with mad elbows tries to outflute his reflection, and a cat passes like a deeper night inside the night. Sometimes there are two final remarks shouted into the dark. You idiot! You idiot! And sometimes a murderer grabs her coat and slips out and her lover sobs and sobs. Sometimes a stranger swats away a fly. And sometimes an apple sits replete in its bowl. And if you look long enough, its character escapes and starts dancing. And sometimes a bird speaks gently to an old man can't even think about the blind man watching his listening, but sometimes a man stands framed and lighted over there, watching me, watching, and sometimes a wooden table and a tired chair, sometimes a sleeper keeps one eye open. And sometimes garden, sometimes a rose appears all these years, after all these years, a being made entirely of eyelids opening, and then more opening, as if to say, I too am here, under the same strict law, neither to sleep nor leave, but keep watching. That's Alice Oswald's The Watchman. And that's today's episode. As always, it's about you and I in this theater. You there in the dark, and I here wondering where you are. Thanks for listening. Day for night.